have a scripture reading. Todd Martin will read us from read to us from Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. Colossians chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Just a, a few short weeks ago, probably three, I guess, maybe, uh, we started a brief uh, series of lessons that we are doing on Sunday nights uh, that we are calling When Your Children Ask. And we're basing that from the statement uh, to that effect from Joshua chapter 4, verse 21, where God's people had crossed the Jordan River to enter into the promised land and were about to engage the inhabitants there in battle and God was going to drive them out so that His people could possess that land as a part of His plan for mankind. And as they had crossed the Jordan and had made it to the other side, God had instructed them to set up a stone monument. And uh, it was to be a reminder of what God had done to lead them across and give them that land. And that was the thing that that they were told. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them. And so we're, we're using that as kind of a launching pad to make the case that many times our children will ask us questions that have to do with our actions. That our actions many times will prompt questions. And... Uh, And one of those questions that our children ask us at times as they see growing up and they realize that that our worship assemblies uh, are not always the same in many respects as what they see elsewhere, perhaps on television or perhaps uh, as they uh, encounter others who perhaps describe their worship assemblies uh, and how things are different. And one of those has to do with our music, the form or the style of music that we have in our worship assemblies. That we don't have instrumental accompaniment. Many times our children want to know, why is that? And that's a great question. Many times it's not our children that are asking us that, but others that we encounter uh, who know of uh, uh, the way we conduct our worship. And they want to know why. And so that was the question that we started answering last week. And last week's lesson was one in which I tried to simply give the positive uh, argument, if you will, and I use argument in its classical sense, not in the sense of bickering, um, uh, but to make a case, to make the positive case for what we do, for singing uh, without musical accompaniment. If you were not here uh, last Sunday evening for that lesson, uh, it uh, the audio of it is on our website. I would encourage you to go and 
and listen to that because we're not going to take time to rehearse all of that tonight and remake that case. Tonight's lesson is more of a follow-up that I think is necessary because once the positive case for a cappella singing is presented to folks, oftentimes there are response questions. Uh, well, what about this? Uh, or, or what about that? And many of those response questions will come from uh, the Scriptures, uh, things that they read elsewhere in the Bible, and they want to know, well, how do you harmonize the position you just made with this passage or with this thought? And so I think it would be good for us to consider some of those uh, counter-arguments, if you will, that people will sometimes bring up uh, in response to the case that we made last time. So we're going to do that tonight with four. These are not all of them, uh, all of the counter-arguments. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, uh, I, I preached on this topic, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I think, and... Um, uh, and did a lesson on some of these counter-arguments, and I did some different ones then. Uh, I think maybe one or two of these will be the same because they are more often used, but, um, but this material will be in many respects different from that material, but that audio should be available online as well. So what are some of the things that people say in response to the positive case that we made last time for a cappella singing in worship? Here's the first one that you hear sometimes. And this one's becoming more and more popular uh, in, in our day among members of Churches of Christ who are uh, pushing for a change to be made in this area of worship. And it, basically it's the idea that we need to be culturally relevant in order to reach people. That if we're going to reach people today, especially the younger generation, if we're going to reach that age group with the, the message of the gospel then we're going to have to present ourselves in a way that is, that is relevant culturally. And, and our style, if you will, of, of music and our worship is just not culturally relevant. And instruments are culturally relevant. And, and the younger generation today can relate to that. And so we need to try to structure our worship assemblies in a way that shows our relevance to the culture. That the way we do things is is outdated, perhaps, and uh, and we just we need to we need to better reflect the culture in order to reach the culture. Well, that's the argument uh, that uh, that's proposed. So, how do would how would one respond to that? My first response to that would be, well, were were musical instruments culturally relevant in the first century? And the answer to that is yes, they were. Did they have musical instruments in the first century? Sure, they did. Were they a part of the Greco-Roman culture? Yes, absolutely. You know, the same arguments often made uh, with, with other uh, with other elements that that people want to bring into uh, the worship uh, today. Uh, you know. Uh, drama and things, things like that, cultural dance and things of that sort. Well, those were culturally relevant things in Greco-Roman cultures. As a matter of fact, where do you think we got those things in our culture? We picked them up from the Romans and the Greeks. And so they were culturally relevant then. 
But then the next question, but did the church bring them into the worship then? Well, the answer to that is no, they didn't. We covered that in last week's lesson, the historical perspective. And we pointed out that, that history is, is, is clear on this. And this comes from historians that are not rooted in churches of Christ. These are individuals that have no axe to grind on this. These are just simple historians that have looked at the evidence. And the evidence is clear. Universally, historically speaking, instruments of music in Christian worship were not used for multiplied centuries the church was established. It was not until about 670 A.D. that we find the first reference to one being used in an assembly, but it was not until the 1200s. Until they, uh, it was not until then that they were basically accepted generally by the religious populace. So historically speaking, they just were not used, though they were culturally relevant then. So the cultural relevance argument doesn't hold water because it doesn't fit with what is, what is historically the case. But I want to add one thing to that. What bothers me more with this counter-argument is the assumption that lies in back of it. And that assumption is this, that when we assemble, we are assembling for the purpose of reaching out to the culture. Think about that. That's the assumption that's in back of that argument. The argument is, well, if we're going to reach the culture, then we've got to conduct our worship assemblies in such a way that is culturally relevant to them. My question, where in the New Testament is it taught that our worship assemblies are for the purpose of reaching culture? Ever thought about that? Where would you go in the New Testament to make the case that the reason why we assemble on the first day of the week is so that we can reach out to the culture. Where in the New Testament does it teach that our worship assemblies are evangelistic opportunities? Can you think of a passage? I can't. Why do we assemble on the first day of the week? Is it not to worship God? Isn't that what the New Testament teaches? That the purpose for our gathering together is to offer our worship to God. Now, do we have guests in our assemblies? Sure we do. At almost every one. Is that okay? Sure it is. But that's not the real purpose for which we have assembled. But because we have, and I say we in general, because a lot of folks have adopted that disposition about worship, that's, that's where these calls come from today for, I think the term that's, that you'll often hear is seeker-friendly, that our worship assemblies need to be seeker-friendly. In other words, we need, to be, uh, we need to be concerned about what somebody who is seeking is going to think or feel or how they're going to respond to what we do here. And so we need to conduct ourselves in a way that makes it friendly to those who are not Christians, to those who are outside who may be looking for something. But again, read through the New Testament. And is there somewhere a passage, a principle 
that would teach us that that is the purpose for which we have assembled? If it's there, I haven't read it. Our purpose is to assemble, to offer our worship to God. So who friendly does our worship need to be? Doesn't it need to be God friendly? If you want to use the terminology. You see, instead of, instead of trying to orient everything that we do when we've assembled together to be culturally relevant, our question needs to be, what is God relevant? What has God said He wants in worship? Because that's why we've assembled. We haven't assembled to reach out to people. That's what we do out there. <laughs> what we do in here is for the church to come together as a body and as a body offer its worship to God. So the question when we assemble should not be, what can we do to make other people comfortable? The question needs to be, what can we do that will be pleasing to God? Because that's why we're here. Once we take the focus off of what God wants and start reorienting our worship to what people who aren't even Christians want, I submit to you, we have missed the boat. Worship assemblies are for that purpose, to worship. What's relevant to God? That's what we looked at last time. What's relevant to God is, here's what God says He wants. And the passages simply mention singing. So this whole idea about, well, we need to be culturally relevant is a completely off-base focus for why we assemble in the first place. Our assemblies are not for outsiders. Now, please don't misunderstand what I mean by that. It doesn't mean visitors are not welcome. They are. We're glad when we have guests who come. And we hope that they will be able to see from what we do and from what we teach what the, what the Bible does teach and what the truth is. And we want that and we desire that. But that's still not the purpose for which we're here. We're here to worship God and to offer God what He wants. Now, whether or not that's culturally acceptable or culturally relevant, is irrelevant to why we're here. Number two. Some will say, well, but, but weren't instruments used in the Old Testament? And the answer to that is, yes, absolutely. Many times people will point to, uh, to many of the Psalms, and Psalm 150 is probably the classic example of that. There are more Psalms who, that, that mention this. But Psalm 150 is one in particular that, uh, that specifically mentions instruments that were used in praise to God. Psalm 150 verse 3, Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. goes on to, to, to just list all of these different instruments that were utilized in their praise of God. So yes... Instruments of music were used in the Old Testament in their worship to God. So were animal sacrifices. So was the burning of incense. Uh, worship under that system was offered through specific uh, individuals that were of a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi. They were the priests who would offer 
uh, specific acts of worship to God, and so you had to go through the priests in many cases. Their worship was um, was conducted uh, on the Sabbath, on the seventh day of the week, not the first. All of those things were a part of Old Testament worship as well. So if we're going to argue that we should use instrumental praise in our worship today simply because they use them in the Old Testament, then we would have to argue by the same way, by the same means of reasoning, that we should also be offering animal sacrifice today. We should also be using incense in our worship today. We should also perhaps be traveling to Jerusalem to go to the temple. Because all of those things were a part of that worship too. So if you're going to pick, by what hermeneutical principle are you going to select one part of that worship and say, well, because they did that, we're going to do that too. And yet say, well, but, but we don't need animal sacrifice. We don't need incense. We don't need these others. Even though, by the same argument, you could make the case that we should use them. But the issue really is this. Under what law do we live? What, what covenant, what testament is the, is the testament that is binding on us today? In other words, which testament are we accountable to? Which testament are we amenable to? The old or the new? Well, the law of Moses as such was given to the Jewish people for the purpose of governing their conduct until such time as Jesus would establish His new covenant, which would be different from the old. We read passages like in the book of Hebrews that talk about how that has happened. Hebrews 8, verses 6 and 7, for example. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 9 and 10. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. This word's attributed to Christ. He, Jesus, takes away the first covenant that he may establish the second. And it's by that will or that covenant that we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The law was our schoolmaster, our tutor to bring us to Christ. But now that the faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. Galatians three nineteen through about verse 25. So passages of plenty in the New Testament that remind us that it's not the Old Testament that we go to to find authority for what we do today. The Old Testament is applicable to us just in, in, in terms of general principle but not in the specifics of how we are to approach God. We get our instructions about how to worship God today under the New Covenant from the New Covenant and not from the Old. So the simple fact that they were utilized in the Old Testament does not mean that they are authorized for use in the New Testament. Where is the New Testament authority for their use is the question we must answer. And we answered that last week. The authority is not there. Number three. Some will respond by saying, well, isn't the book of Revelation a part of the New Testament? Yes, it is. And the book of Revelation says that there are instruments of music in heaven. 
This argument stems from the mention specifically of harps. In two places in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 8, and chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, where harps are specifically mentioned. And the argument basically goes like this. Am I supposed to believe, and this is actually pretty much an exact quote from one preacher in Churches of Christ, incidentally, who said, am I supposed to believe that what God is enjoying now in heaven, He is despising on earth? And his, he thought that was a rhetorical question. His point was, if God is enjoying harps in heaven, then how could he be despising the same type of music on earth? Well, <clears throat> my response to that would be this. First of all, we've got to remember that the book of Revelation is a book of symbols. And we're, we're clued into that in the very first verse of the book, where John said these things were, were signified to him. Signified is the idea of sign. Matter of fact, if you chop off the back part of that word, signified, you're left with the first part that says sign. These are signs, these are symbols, this is figurative, uh, cryptic, if you will, non-literal language that's used all over the book of Revelation. That's the type of literature that it is. And John, at the beginning of that letter, says that he was caught up in a vision where he was able to see into the throne room of God and see things that were happening in the heavenly realm. And he began to describe these visions that he was having. And he described them verbally. And John described in the book of Revelation things like seven-headed beasts, dragons, scorpions. He described uh, in, I believe, the 14th chapter, a, um, a harlot, a prostitute. He described things like um, a golden street, a river, things like that. Are those things literally there? Is there are there literally seven-headed beasts in heaven? Are there literally dragons in heaven? Are there literally scorpions? and harlots in heaven? We understand, no, there aren't. Those things are not literally there. Heaven is a spiritual realm inhabited by spirit beings. Material things, as we know them in this world, don't exist there. Paul said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's a different type of realm. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. The images in Revelation were used as a vehicle to convey thoughts and ideas. Not to convey what literally is there. And so there are no more harps in heaven than there are dragons, scorpions, and harlots. 
Those were images seen by John in these visions to convey certain thoughts and ideas. They were not intended to be considered by us as things that are literally there. Jesus is depicted, for example, in Revelation 5, verse 6, as a sheep, a lamb that has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, in that vision, that's what John saw. And if you read the chapter, it's very clear that that is something that is representative of, of Jesus. But if you and I were to be able with physical eyes to peer into the heavenly realm and see Jesus, would we see a seven-horned, seven-eyed sheep? I don't think any of us believe that. And rightly so. So would we really see a harp too? I don't believe we would. Because that harp in those in Revelation 5 and in Revelation 15 is just as figurative language as the sheep with seven eyes and the dragon with ten heads. It's just as figurative, just as non-literal as all of these other symbols there. But why do we assume, why do some people assume that the harps have to be literal when they recognize clearly that dragons, scorpions, harlots, and all these other things are figurative. It's faulty hermeneutics. It's faulty interpretation. And then number four. Some will counter by saying, well, you know what? We use other things in our worship that are not mentioned in the New Testament. Like uh, hymnals. Songbooks, like um, uh, microphones. You don't read about microphones in the New Testament. Uh, some song leaders utilize a pitch pipe. Can't you play music on a, on a pitch pipe? Sure, yeah, you can do that. So what about those things that we use that are not mentioned in the New Testament, but we don't seem to have a problem with those things? Why do we have a problem then with utilizing instrumental music? And this is often pointed out as, as a case of inconsistency. That if you're going to object to the instrument, then you need to object to these other things too on the same ground. Well, what this objection fails to recognize is the difference between something that is an authorized aid to our worship and in something that is a sinful addition to our worship. And one of the things that we need to always be careful about in our study of the Bible and in our application of it is to be good discerners. Discernment is, in many cases, very... Uh, lacking in uh, the thinking of some folks. And we need to practice trying to be discerning with regard to our study and our application of principles like this. First of all, a songbook, as one example, uh, electric lights. You don't read about those in the New Testament either, do you? 
microphones. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, PowerPoint is is utilized sometimes in in singing instead of reading for, instead of singing from a book. Sometimes the words are projected. But you don't read about PowerPoints and projectors in the New Testament either. But things like that, a songbook, electricity, microphones, projectors, all of those things assist us in carrying out the obligation to sing. But when all is said and done, if, if we use a book or if we use a microphone or if we use electricity, when all of that's said and done, are we still just singing? Yeah, we are. And so those things are assisting us in carrying out the obligation. But what happens when I add instrumental music to vocal music? Now, am I still just singing? No, not anymore. Because now we've added a completely different kind of music than what God said He wanted. So now I'm not just singing, now we're singing and playing, which is, again, a different kind of music than what God said He wanted. But if I use a songbook, am I adding a different kind of music than what God said He wanted? No, I'm still just singing. If we use electric lights, am I adding a different kind of music than what God said He wanted? No, still just singing. That's how you can tell the difference between something that is an expedient, something that is an aid to worship, versus something that is a sinful addition to worship. When you add something that is of the same nature as that which God has directed you, then you've got a sinful addition and not an aid. See, some people will try to say, well, the instrument's just an aid. No, it's a different kind of music than what God said He wanted. A book is just an aid, because when everything's said and done, we're still just singing. You add an instrument, you've added a different kind of music. And so we've got to be discerning in those kinds of things. The pitch pipe is not being used while we're singing. Now, some people have a conscience problem with that, and they can't conscientiously use one, and I understand that. And if you can't conscientiously use one, that's fine. But if just getting the starting note and then the pitch pipes put away, when we start singing, are we still just singing? Yeah, we are. The pitch pipe's not being used as a part of our worship because we're not worshiping with the use of that instrument. The pitch is, got, is, is obtained and the instrument is put aside and it does not accompany our singing. We're still only singing. If I had a keyboard up here, and I'm not suggesting we do this, but if I had a keyboard up here, and I wanted to get the pitch for the song, and I walked over and I hit C, and then I walked away and we sang the song, would we still just be singing? Yeah. Because we wouldn't be using that as we are engaging in the worship activity of singing. We've got to discern these things. Let me give you another example between the difference between an aid and an addition. In the Lord's Supper, we use these trays that are, that are here. 
And we use those to facilitate getting the emblems around to all of us so that we can partake of the Lord's Supper. You read about trays in the New Testament with regard to the Lord's Supper? You ever read about them? I don't remember reading anything about trays. But are they authorized? Yeah, they are. Why? Because they're expedient. Because they aid us in carrying out the obligation to observe the Supper. When all is said and done, are we still just observing the Lord's Supper? Yeah. Are we still using just the emblems to partake of that Jesus authorized? Yeah. So even though you don't read about trays in the New Testament, they're authorized because they're expedient. They assist us in carrying out the obligation. But when all is said and done, we've still only done what God asked us to do. But what if I change the emblems? Well, didn't Jesus specify the emblems? Yes, He did. So if I change the emblems, now I've stepped into an area where God has specifically specified what He wanted. And I don't have the authority to change that. So now I've added something to what God said, and now I've got unauthorized worship. But the trays don't change the emblems. The trays don't change the, the actual observance of the supper. They simply assist us in observing it. So we have to be able to reason through this to recognize what constitutes an authorized expedient and what constitutes an unauthorized addition. See, the issue with instrumental music is not that it isn't mentioned in the New Testament. It's that it's not authorized by the New Testament. There are some things that are not mentioned in the New Testament that are authorized because they're expedient. Electric lights, church buildings, songbooks, trays, PowerPoint. None of those things are mentioned in the New Testament, but they're authorized because they're expedient. So the problem with instrumental music is not that it isn't mentioned, it's that it's not authorized. God authorizes by what He says, not by what He doesn't say. So what God authorized for us to do, music-wise, is to sing. If we change that to some other kind of music or add some kind of music to that, then we've done something for which we have no authority. That's the nature of expedience. Expedients don't have to be mentioned in order to be authorized because that's the nature of them. You ever read about automobiles in your New Testament? No. Airplanes? No. But are we authorized to use those things as we try to take the gospel to people? Yeah. Why? Because they're expedient. They help us to carry out the general command. Jesus said, go and preach. Go and teach. Well, the general command to go has to be fulfilled somehow. God didn't specify, here's how I want you to go. He just said, go. Well, if I use an automobile, am I still just going? Yeah. If I walk, am I going? Yeah. If I fly in an airplane, am I going? Yeah. If I utilize the internet, am I going? Am I taking the God? Yeah. 
So all of those things are authorized practices because they are expedient. They assist us in carrying out the command. But I can't change the command because that would be a sinful addition. Here's the bottom line. Instrumental praise was neither prescribed by Jesus nor by his apostles. And the church, under the direct guidance of inspiration in the first century, did not use instruments in their worship, though they were very much a part of first century culture. And so if we were to introduce them into the worship of the church today, we would be doing something for which we do not have biblical authority. That's the bottom line. And so when your children ask, tell them. We're going to look at some other additional questions in future lessons that our children may ask. They may they, they won't have they won't all have something to do with our worship or things like that. Uh, but uh, hopefully these will be lessons that you'll find helpful as you perhaps have to deal with these questions, whether from your children or perhaps even from others. I know this lesson is not the type of lesson that, that naturally leads into a, an extension of the invitation, but we want to do that. We always... Uh, like to remind people that the invitation of the Lord is always open. It's not just at the end of a sermon that you have an opportunity to respond to the Lord. You can do that any time. But any time also includes this time. And so we want to offer the invitation to those who may be subject to it. If you're not a Christian, you're ready to be united with Christ in the waters of baptism, then we're ready to help you to complete your obedience to the gospel. If you're already a Christian and you need uh, to perhaps confess uh, some sin, uh, be restored to your first love, or perhaps you need uh, the strength of your Christian family that can come through, uh, through our prayers uh, for you and with you. And let us know what your needs are tonight if we can help you in any way. Let us stand and sing.